welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host Jess and in this fortnightly podcast I will be chatting all things books as well as interviews with authors, publishers and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read or you want to know the story behind the story then this is the podcast for you. Hello everyone and welcome to a new year for this So Novel podcast. I think 2021 is yet to be um, that much different to 2020, but we will see how we go for the rest of the year. Um, I wanted to start off by chatting about the So Novel book club. So I put up on the Instagram stories a few weeks ago, mentioning uh, who would be interested in joining a book club for the podcast. And I had quite a few people that replied and said they'd be very interested. So that is happening. So for our first book, we are going to be reading The Push by Ashley Audrey. If you had listened to my solo episode prior to Christmas, you would have heard me rave about this book. Um, I have already read it, yes, but I am going to reread it again with you guys. And then at the end of the month, we are going to chat to Ashley Audrain, who is the author. So that is a bit exciting. So for the first episode back for the year, I have an author chat for you guys today. And I am chatting with the author of one of my favorites from 2020, which was A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing by Jessie Too. So in today's episode, we chat about class, about gender, about race, uh, about stereotypes, everything that's mentioned in the book. We, we chat about that. And I know this book really divided bookstagram um you are either in the loved it or kind of hated it camp and I think people that were not in the love it camp will probably take away more from this chat than those who loved it I think for those who loved it they probably already know and understand where Jessie is coming from why she um done things a certain way in the book and um, portrayed Jenna in a certain light. Uh, So I feel like this chat is more for those who maybe didn't connect as much with the book. I think you will take away a lot from this chat. So let me know what you all think and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Jessie, and welcome to the So Novel podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, first question, what are you currently reading? Oh, great question. Um, Joe, I, I think I believe the name is Jonestown or something to that iteration. Uh, it's about uh, Jim Jones. <laughs> oh, I haven't yeah, heard that my, Yeah, because my next book is about cults. So I've been doing a lot of reading about cults. Oh, that sounds really exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now we're going to discuss your debut release, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. So can you tell us a bit about the book and also what is the story behind this story? Um, So the book is 
about a young woman who is growing up in Sydney and she's basically struggling to return to her golden days. So she was a violin prodigy. Um, she had a meltdown when she was in her teenage years, as a lot of prodigies do experience. Um, and then she, so we meet her at the start of the book while as she is trying to re-enter that world of classical music and tr basically trying to negotiate how she fits into this world. So let's start out by talking about the protagonist, which is Jenna, which you were just speaking about. So I feel like Jenna's character created a bit of controversy in the bookstagram space. So there were a few mm. reviews that commented that they didn't feel like they could connect with the book because they couldn't relate to Jenna's character, which mm. personally made me LOL. And I mm. found myself commenting on these posts and sticking up for Jenna because I think people become quite dismissive um, when the lead female doesn't fulfill this heroine arc, you know, when she's not mm. likable, when she's not obeying societal standards, we find mm. out that Jenna is someone who uses sex to fill a void. She has sex with men who she's not infatuated by and who majority of the time she has no real emotional connection with. And still in 2021, there is a large portion of society who find this, I guess, unacceptable. So can you unpack Jenna for us and tell us why did you create this female character as in quotation marks, unlikable? You know, like if I had one goal in my life, it would be to get rid of that, um, that word likability and the link that women have to have towards it. Um, mm. in like, it's like a measurement of our value or worth or status in the society. And this is a very noble pursuit, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Jenna is um, someone who, it's so interesting because like basically she just puts her own needs first and any woman who puts her own needs first is just automatically called unlikable, which is so interesting. Like I've, I've really thought about now that the book has come out for more than half a year now, like really, really such a, it's almost like a social experiment to see how, um, how conservative actually the society remains because she, um, she does some deplorable things. I agree. Um, I'm not casting a moral judgment on her. Um, but I also just think that um, she's someone who I wanted to really challenge the norms of um, what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be a young woman and what it meant to be a young woman who was not white. And I was sort of, I've always grown up in Australia being really exhausted by the lack of stories out there that center someone who looks like me. But like whenever there is the mention of an Asian woman, she's always, always undoubtedly like super subservient and gentle and docile and, you know, put in any other word that resembles a woman in the 1920s. And like, I was just so sick of that. And you know, the old adage, like, if you don't see what you want in the world, you create it. So I basically just created someone who I would have thought, like, I'm not telling women to resemble and practice the kind of behavior that Jenna in the, in the book does. I'm just saying, like, here's a woman, a young woman who is playing the game on her own terms. How do you, what do you think about that? That's it. You know, like, why do we have to have women um, in our cultural lexicon be flawed but likable like that really irritates me like men have never had to be filtered through that likability lens yeah it's just a, so the double standard just really it, it makes me so angry yeah mm. 
Yeah. So talking about um, that male lens. So um, some of the big themes in the book include loneliness and sex and how they interrelate. So my first part of this question is around the sex scenes that you write about. So again, a lot of people found them to be a bit confronting. Um, Personally, they didn't bother me, but I wanted to know, did you include these with the descriptions for um, a bit of shock value or was it more along this line of feminism that pushes against the patriarchy to highlight female desires? I think a bit of both, but maybe leaning towards more of the latter. And I wanted to do that through, like, by, by in a way that would make a comment on how the history and the precedence, the overwhelming precedence we have of the, the male gaze in which it has really um, compromised and screwed up our own views of ourselves. So like Jenna is someone who behaves in a way in the bedroom where she thinks that is the way, the only pathway to power. But, you know, invariably as we read, like I've had a lot of people come to me and say like, this is the saddest book I've ever read, which like breaks my heart a little because, um, I guess there are elements of her obviously in me. And so I'm, I just like, it makes me, I don't know, a little bit, um, it wounds me in a way that I didn't expect because I didn't think that I was the only one who like found some sort of like false sense of self-esteem through that kind of behavior. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, I think, um, I think certainly it was a deliberate inclusion, the sex scenes, because um, I wanted to see what it was like for like, well, I wanted to really write what I would have wanted to see, I guess. And there's some part of literature that is not as, there's a bit coy, I think, especially Australian literature, that's a bit coy and a bit like, like just like think about all the great Australian novelists we currently, like if you Google great Australian novelists, um, you know, um, they all have a similar sort of civility to them in the way that they write. And I kind of wanted to just like say um, to all that, like I'm going to walk away from that kind of writing and do my own thing. Mm. And do you think maybe that's why um, a lot of people found it difficult to read because it's not along that normal I guess, narrative line. And it, it does question people to, uh, I guess, think about the big questions. Yeah, in a way that I, I'm not sure how much response um, was sort of coloured by the fact that I'm not white and I'm not, like, middle-aged. I think there is, like, there, there's a lot I want to say about Australian literature and its landscape and it's sort of um, conservatism. But um, I, I do wonder whether um, part of the re- reaction was that it was from someone who has a face like mine mm. and, and that could really, I don't know, just like make people confront their own stereotypes about what an Asian woman can get away with. Mm, yeah. So let's talk a bit more about race in the book. So you actually have your very own podcast and it's called Asian Bitches Down Under. And the description for it reads, roughly one in 10 Aussies come from somewhere in Asia. Yet when you look at our representation on TV, film, radio and literature, you think we were completely non-existent. So tell us about the representation of race in A Lonely Girl. 
Yeah, I think I didn't do that very subtly. Like I think um, <laughs> a great writer is able to do things uh, kind of like it, it, a great writer is able to talk about really um, important issues in a non-direct way and in a, in a way that, that seeps through the reader's minds without the reader being aware of it. But I, I think I guess because I'm still learning and this is my first book, and I wanted to just like put it up front. I was not very shy or coy about saying, like making the characters, put, putting my own thoughts in the characters, which is like, you know, a lot of um, the classical music world is very, um, hom- is very homogenized. There's um, predominantly one race, predominantly one kind of sexual leaning, predominantly from a very, very upper middle class, upper middle class, you know, cohort in society. It's just so narrow. It's such a small part of the society that is not, I I haven't felt very inclusive. Um, It's changing and it's getting better. Yes. But the um, momentum is way too slow. And I think like, I'm not in my twenties anymore. So I'm in my thirties. So I feel like I have done a bit of the hard yard in the sense that like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm as like, you know, I'm not a veteran, no way. But like, I, I, I feel like I'm in a place where I can say um, it's just not good enough. Like, mm-hmm. and it's too slow. And there may be some changes that just need people to like smash them in the face in a way, metaphorically speaking, and saying, this is a problem. Um, and we need to, you know, f- really just say it, you know, like I remember a few years ago, even when I went into like say the Sydney theatre company and I'd make a comment to a group of friends like oh like I'm the only Asian here or everyone here is white like some people would get take offense by that like even a few years ago I think now it's like less so because of what's happened in the US in the last 12 months but Mm. still there's a lot of white fragility and that just aggravates me yeah yeah name something then how are you going to change it exactly exactly and how do you think um the book, because the book was released kind of around that Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. How do you think that impacted people's um, perception of the book? I have no idea because I don't engage with anyone online. Like I'm very, um, I'm a, I'm a staunch militant anti, <laughs> anti-social media person. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I guess I remember um, that during that time, a lot of people were buying books and reaching for books that were written by black people, which, you know, was very encouraging, but also um, for me, it was highly insulting as well, because someone like me has been doing it their whole, someone like me who has been naturally reaching for black and colored authors, racialized authors my whole life. Suddenly it's like, Oh, um, this black writer matters because white people now have found them. It's like, We've found them all, like, they didn't need the white gaze to be acknowledged or Mm. to have some sort of status in society. Um, So I found that kind of a weird time. Mm. But, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. Let's go back to talking about the classical music. Um, So it's another major theme that's explored in the book. So tell us, how did classical music impact your life and why did you choose to include it as part of Jenna's narrative? I think classical music was the perfect um, sort of art form in which from in which I could critique whiteness because it is such a um, overwhelmingly white and um, Western European kind of historical activity, and so it was very easy for me to put this character in this world and then through those lens and through that history and through all the sort of 
structure of that um, industry and that art form um, look at the problems that we have in which we only include some people in a cultural um, sort of activity. Um, like I feel like even art is perhaps more inclusive um, and other forms of music, obviously, like jazz and, yeah, um, R&B and all that. But um, classical music is still predominantly white and um, I I think in my life it's been, um, like I, I think I still struggle with it because there are only, like I haven't picked up my violin. I used to play. I haven't picked it up for years um, because it's so still like super traumatising because I had like a pretty pretty heavy experience with it. Nothing like nothing bad happened to me or anything. It's just like um, it was a world where I felt extremely excluded and extremely isolated and inadequate uh, because like you just need to be of a very certain type. Like in order to make it in the classical music world, there's an archetype, there's a template that you need to fill. So anyone who doesn't fill in, fill, fit into those kind of archetypes um, are just invariably kicked out. And it's just not, a, I, I, yeah, I didn't find it a very welcoming space. Yeah. And is that um, generally white, middle class, that type yeah, of Yeah, like um, you ask um, anyone who has gone to a public school, um, they probably, like if they didn't have the parents or their own, on their own volition, like seek music lessons, they probably wouldn't have picked up an instrument, maybe the recorder. But like if you ask a person who went to a private school, they have they will always have they will always tell you like I did violin in year three I did trumpet in year four you know like it like there's a reason why private schools implement mandatory um string lessons and woodwind lessons and brass lessons like before the kid is age 12 it's like a status symbol like you look at the pamphlets and the on the you hop on a website for like Shaw or Riverview like or Cranbrook and they will have like a kid with a violin on the website because it's a status symbol. Yeah, well, I'd never thought about it like that before, actually. It's, and I yeah, it's so elitist. Yeah, yeah. But I also heard you talking about, I think it was on the Book Depository podcast about how there's also this stereotype of um, I guess young Asians um playing the violin as well um there was kind yeah. of you were talking about there's that eye roll when you say that you are an Asian and you play the violin can you tell us yeah. about that as well when you are someone new in the country i.e an immigrant and this doesn't have to just be an Asian if you're someone outside of a country that is predominantly of one um, skin color and you et- like enter the society what you want to do is you go above and beyond in order to be accepted and I think that is perhaps one way in which, like, typically Asians have um, tried to, like, impress upon the world that my my child is worthy of your attention, my child is worthy of your reverence and your respect and your attention because, like, look at them. They are so good at math. They um, are in the soccer team. They're, they do lacrosse or whatever, something random. Um, and they play like five different instruments and they're all like, they're so accomplished because like it, for a person who does not, who, who does not have white skin or is not white passing, you have to do so much more in order to have people look at you because naturally when someone looks at an Asian, um, like say in a courtroom or something, say if you're trying to be a barrister or something, I always use that 
um, an analogy, like people would just like immediately see you and dump a heap of stereotypes onto you. And so you have to, like, I think I've made myself like not consciously, but all my life I've tried to be extremely articulate when I speak to white people because it's a way of calibrating like the sort of lack of dignity that I've had having had like 25 years of being ignored because mm. because like when I was at school at university, people will see me and just think, oh, she's an Asian, she's quiet, she doesn't have an opinion. And that just like, it's so insulting. I'm just like you and I'm just like you. I'm just like any other white person, but because I have an Asian face, people just think, oh, she's just like, she doesn't have an opinion she's soft. She's probably like loves to cook. And, you know, like, yes, I do love to cook, but like (laughs) all these stereotypes are so like they're dumped onto me. And Mm. so I carry the burden of having to transgress and it's so exhausting, but like, that is, that is why like we go above and beyond. And like, yeah, like you think of what is the one sort of most glaring symbol of status and whiteness it is like the violin right like western canon kind of thing and i think asians try to um try to sort of like impress upon white people or at least step towards this idea of closeness proximity to whiteness by like playing the instrument in which represents like whiteness Mm, yeah yeah that's a really good point now also in the book Jenna only has really one close female friend, Olivia, and even this relationship is uh, quite toxic. So were you hoping to highlight female friendships as kind of an underlying plot in the book? Yeah, definitely. I think I wanted to centre um, female friendships. I think the the sort of most generative relationships she has are in the book are with her female friends, at least like with Val. I agree with you that um, the thing that she has with Olivia is sort of like it, it started off innocently, but then they kind of realised that they're different and also that um, they're competitive in a way that wasn't like healthy competition and also like it wasn't healthy because they both had their own insecurities, which they didn't talk about together. And so they kind of like just like stewed in their pond of like misery and um, resentment and like anger, which, you know, I have gone through um, with people. Like sometimes I'm so filled with shame and anger that I can't actually communicate with someone and tell them this is how I feel. Mm. Yeah. Now to wrap up, what can we expect next from Jesse too? So you mentioned earlier that you were working on your next book. Are you allowed to tell us a bit about that? Um, all I'll say is that it's uh, about a cult and it's also re- related to the classical music world. <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. Jesse's book, A Lonely Girl's A Dangerous Thing, is published by Alan and Unwin and is available now. You can also find Jesse on Instagram at Jesse underscore two with a number two on the end. Thank you again, Jesse. Thank you so much. It's been so nice to chat. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at So Novel Podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy reading.